Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It is good to be back in the Word of God with you again. Today we are starting our study of Daniel, and so I invite you to dig out your Bible if you can and turn to the first chapter of Daniel. Now, if you've never done a systematic study, a verse-by-verse and chapter-by-chapter study of Daniel, you are in for a treat over the coming weeks and months. Because by studying Daniel, you will see the importance of a literal interpretation of the Word of God. By studying Daniel, you'll get a glimpse into the plan of God for the nation of Israel. And by studying Daniel, you'll see the plan of God unfolding among the nations. Daniel 1, and we start with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king." Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Well, you may remember the old story about Chippy the parakeet. Poor Chippy never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage, and the next minute he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problem began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. Well, she removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. And then the phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She had barely said the words hello when she heard a frightening sound, and poor Chippy got sucked in. Well, the bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened up the bag, and there was Chippy still alive, but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy underneath the running water. And then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted that poor bird with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. And a few days after the trauma, a reporter contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she said, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. It's not hard to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from anyone's heart. Now, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had one of those days or one of those weeks, or sometimes it becomes one of those years. When you begin to question, God, why is this happening in my life? How do you, how do you face the troubles of life? Do you let the world steal your song? You see, the point is, the book of Daniel is not just a collection of Sunday school stories. 
Daniel is so much more because interwoven into these verses of Scripture is a story of real human suffering. But during this dark time in Israel's history, certain men rose up to serve and honor the Lord. Let's get a good look at the history of this time, at what's taking place in the text. Verse 1 starts out the book by telling us, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. At this time in history, there were two superpowers on the scene, Babylon and Egypt, and they were competing with each other for control of the Middle East. It was really only a matter of time before these two big kids on the block would do battle. And sure enough, that battle came early on in the summer of 605 B.C., when the Babylonian army, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, who at that time was the crown prince, they attacked an Egyptian army at Carchemish on the upper Euphrates River. And when this battle took place, the Babylonians stomped on the Egyptians. The Egyptians had to retreat back to their homeland. And this opened the door for the Babylonians to come to Jerusalem. You need to be aware of the fact that the nation of Israel was divided after the reign of Solomon because of Solomon's sin. You can read the details later in 1 Kings 11 of how the nation became divided. Ten of the tribes became part of the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel. Two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, formed the southern kingdom, known as Judah. At the start of our book, you need to keep in mind that back in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom had been taken over by Assyria. And then later on, Assyria had been taken over by the forces of Babylon, as well as armies from a couple of different nations. So as our drama unfolds in verse 1, the northern tribes have already been conquered. And the question that was asked in that day was, if the nation of Israel was God's chosen people, why was God allowing this to happen? Why did God allow the nation of Babylon to take over his people? Well, take yourself back in time to the days just before the nation of Israel came into the promised land. It was in Moab that God made a covenant with his people. And the covenant was simple, and the people knew it because God even had written it down for them. Obedience to God would bring them blessing, and disobedience would bring them discipline. And the ultimate measure of the discipline that the Lord would use would be to have the Gentile nations invade, to have the Gentiles overtake the Israelites, and to scatter them over the earth to remove them from their promised land. Turn to Deuteronomy 28, and we're just going to pick out a couple of verses, and we're going to skip down to the verses that describe what happened if they did not obey God. Take a look at verses 25 and 26 in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. Verses 33 and 34. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see. Verses 36 and 37. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you have set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. And you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations where the Lord will drive you. Verse 41. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Now why would these things happen? Well, verse 45. 
Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. It wasn't a mystery. The Lord wanted his people to live his ways. Skip down to verse 47 and notice this carefully. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Recognize the teaching here that the Lord was not just looking for outward obedience. Obedience was a big part of it, but he was looking for their hearts. As you head back, remember the Lord had warned them. He made a covenant with them of what he would do if they failed to serve their God. Now, when the northern kingdom was defeated in 722 BC, the southern kingdom, Judah, took a look at what happened to the tribes in the north, and they turned their hearts back to the Lord, because being taken over by a foreign nation was not something they wanted to share with the northern tribes. But revival only lasts for a while. One generation passes and the next generation forgets the lessons of those gone before. Judah lasted another century, but the prophet Jeremiah teaches us that once again they turned their hearts away from God and turned again to idolatry. And God sent Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, to warn them of the destruction headed their way if they stayed on the path that they were on. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 25 with me. Jeremiah was an eyewitness to the rebellion against the Lord. And in Jeremiah 25, he warned the nation of Judah to turn back to the Lord. Pick up our text with verse 4. And the Lord has sent you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land against its inhabitants, and against those nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. The stubborn rebellion of man is a disgrace to witness. The warning had been given by God repeatedly that if they repented, if they turned their hearts back to the Lord, he would allow them to remain in the promised land. And the great tragedy unfolded in Scripture is that all of Israel could have avoided this simply by walking with the Lord. Now, sometimes wars and battles don't always settle things in the first round. World War I, the war to end all wars. Then came World War II, Gulf War I, Gulf War II. And you can add to that list Babylon coming against Judah and Jerusalem three different times. And the results of the first battle are found in our text in Daniel 1. Babylon battle number one came in 605 B.C., Jeremiah 27 gives us a little interesting detail. The prophet Jeremiah told the people of Judah to submit to Babylon without fighting back. And it seems like the city of Jerusalem was taken without much of a fight. Turn over to 2 Kings 24. 
The first verse of the chapter reveals that Jehoiakim became Nebuchadnezzar's vassal for three years. Now, this leads me to believe that Jehoiakim listened to Jeremiah and surrendered without a fight because Nebuchadnezzar allowed him to remain as a vassal king, as the local representative of the Babylonian Empire. But that didn't last forever, did it? After those three years, Jehoiakim rebelled, and the very next verses in 2 Kings 24 show that the Lord once again sent armies from Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Judah. 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that at one point, Jehoiakim was bound up for transport to Babylon. He was taken prisoner. He must have repented and agreed to submit to the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar again, because we learn in 2 Chronicles that Jehoiakim reigned for several more years. So keep it all straight in your mind. In 605 BC, Daniel and some of the young men were hauled off to Babylon. Jehoiakim was allowed to continue to reign for some time. Jehoiakim then dies. So now in 2 Kings 24, we see in verse 6 that his son, Jehoiakim, reigned. Look at verse 8, still in 2 Kings 24. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Skip to verse 9. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. From the time Daniel had been taken in 605 B.C., eight years had passed. This brings us to 597 B.C. Starting in verse 10, we see the second attack. This became Babylon battle number two for Judah. Notice the text starting in verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servant, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains, and all the mighty men of valor, ten thousand captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land, and he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, seven thousand, and craftsmen and smiths, one thousand all, who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had enough at this point. Anyone that could further his kingdom, the strong men, and the skilled labor, he had them hauled off to Babylon. Now, verses 17 through 20 show us that Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah king, and once again, what happened? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. So one more time, the Lord uses Nebuchadnezzar to attack. So starting in chapter 25 of 2 Kings, we see the third attack, and this is Babylon battle, number three. Eleven more years have gone by. This now brings us up to 586 B.C. Now, if you want to get a good idea of what God means when he says he will destroy something, Watch now, starting in chapter 25, of what he did to Jerusalem. 2 Kings 25, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month of the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around, so the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. 
By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by way of the plain, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him, so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered, the firepans and the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. It's fair to say that God kept his word. Jerusalem was torched, and it underscores the devastating impact of sin and rebellion against the Lord. Now going back to our text in Daniel, here's the point of digging into all this background. This entire time, Daniel was already in Babylon. He was taken there in 605 BC. He was taken there after the first attack. Eight years after he was there, thousands of people from his homeland were brought to Babylon. And then again, another 11 years after that, 19 years after Daniel arrived in Babylon, Jerusalem was destroyed and the rest of the people were taken to Babylon. So as we study, keep in mind that during this time, the nation of Judah was being disciplined by the Lord. Lives were being lost. Families, homes, and cities were being destroyed. The temple of God was set on fire, and this was a time of great tragedy for the nation of Judah. Now back in Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in Daniel verse 1. And notice here he is listed as the king of Babylon. At the point of verse 1, he's not the king yet. His father is at this time. But the reason that the text refers to him as king is simply because Daniel wrote this later on in life, and King Nebuchadnezzar ends up reigning for 43 years. It's a way of identifying who he was. These events were taking place in the summer of 605 B.C. His father, Nabopolassar, died later that summer, around August 15th. Nebuchadnezzar was summoned to the capital and was crowned on September 6th of that year. Now looking at verse 2, we see that Daniel wrote that, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And in the Hebrew language, there is different names for God that emphasize different aspects of his character. The word for Lord here is the word Adonai. Adonai speaks of God as the supreme master. To the people living in Babylon, it appeared that Nebuchadnezzar and his pagan gods were responsible for the victory over Jehoiakim and Judah. But by using the word Adonai, Daniel is saying the one and only supreme God, the God of the Jews, He gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, the rest of the verse reads, With some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. The word of God is consistent, and it's amazingly accurate. Notice here the text states he brought part or some of the vessels. These were the sacred vessels of the temple. These were made by Solomon hundreds of years before this. And then in 701 BC, almost 100 years before our text, King Hezekiah showed them off to some of the representatives of the Babylonian government. Isaiah warned him that a day was coming when those same treasures would be hauled off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar only took some of the vessels from the temple. It fits with scripture because as we just saw in 2 Kings, more were taken in this second attack on Jerusalem and the rest were taken in the third and final attack. And during this time, Nebuchadnezzar was dealing with his own tragedy. It was during this time that he learned of his father's death, and he rushed home to claim his throne. But there's a deeper meaning taking place here. Today, if we conquer another nation, we plant our flag. Well, they had a different custom. Notice the text indicates that Nebuchadnezzar carried some of the articles from the house of God, from the temple of the God of the Jews. But where did he take them to? He carried them back to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. Now, if you see in the Old Testament the name Shinar, think Babylon, same place. This was the capital of the Babylonian Empire located on the Euphrates River. It was just about 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. The city of Babylon had 50 different temples for their pagan gods, but the main god they worshipped was Marduk. And so his temple was the main temple in the city located in the sacred area. You'd have to pass through a gate to get into the sacred area, and the temple was decorated with cedar wood paneling, gold, and semi-precious stones. But by taking these vessels from the temple of the Jews and placing them into the Babylonian temple, it was like a trophy. It was a way of bragging that your God was more powerful than your enemy's God, and that your God allowed you to be victorious. Nebuchadnezzar did this in one of the main temples, either the temple of Marduk or Bel. But the great irony dripping from the pages of Daniel is that Jehovah eventually makes it known to Nebuchadnezzar that the God of the Jews, he is the one true God, sovereign over all. It was Jehovah, the God of the Jews, who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to conquer his own people. And Daniel tells us this in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now verse 3 in our text is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy. Listen to verses 6 and 7. Of Isaiah 39. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. God always keeps his word and nothing takes him by surprise. Nebuchadnezzar instructed the master of the eunuchs to bring some of the children of Israel. This man by the name of Ashpenaz was an important official in their government, and these children of Israel that were selected had no choice. If they were chosen, they were going. You have to remember that the word Chaldeans sometimes referred to the people of the Babylonian Empire, but sometimes, as it does here, it refers to the elite, privileged class of wise men in Babylon. This is the group that Daniel and these men were being trained to be a part of. These were the most influential men in the kingdom. These young Jewish men would have been taught astronomy, astrology, mathematics, history, mythology, agriculture, architecture, and the old languages of Babylon. They were being given the best worldly education that Babylon offered 
to prepare them to become officers in service to the king. Now, two groups were to be brought, some of the king's descendants. These were obviously those of royal blood. And the next phrase, some of the nobles, these were the families ranking just below royalty, but high up in the government. Daniel and the other young men were from the best families of Judah. And verse 4 gives us the qualifications for these men that the king was looking for, young men in whom there was no blemish. Now, no age is given, but judging from the culture of that day, it'd be safe to assume that they were about 14 or 15 years old. No blemish, but good-looking. The idea is healthy young men with nothing physically wrong with them. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to look like they belonged because it would give credit to his royal court. Next is listed, gifted in all wisdom. And the idea here is the ability to make proper decisions. Good discernment. Good at thinking things through. Possessing knowledge is pretty straightforward. Nebuchadnezzar was looking for men that were educated. And third, quick to understand, Nebuchadnezzar wanted some men that were quick at thinking things through. Nebuchadnezzar wanted young men that would look good, think fast, think accurately, that were well-educated. And there was one more thing he wanted. They had to have the ability, as Daniel puts it, to serve in the king's palace. This refers to character. They couldn't have someone in the royal court that was an embarrassment to the king. They needed people with proper manners, proper poise, confidence, and a proper attitude. Young adults are still one of the greatest assets of any nation. Nebuchadnezzar was taking the best of their nation and training them up to help him run the Babylonian Empire. Secondly, notice here at the end of verse 4, the text states, whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. This was the language and literature of the Babylonians, but the Jews wouldn't know the language. The Chaldean language was quite extensive. They would write on clay tablets, and if they wanted to keep what was written, it would be baked. Archaeologists have found quite a few of these tablets, some dating back to the time of Abraham. They've found thousands of these clay tablets that have been baked, so they hold up pretty well. But eventually thousands of Jewish people would be brought to Babylon, and there'd be a cultural and language barrier. And these young advisors would help to bridge the gap once they learned the language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5 we're going to come back to in our next study, but basically the wording here indicates that Nebuchadnezzar commanded these men receive the same meals, the same exact food the king was eating, the same wine that the king was drinking. Wine was the common drink of the day. Food is a powerful motivation. It's hard to hate someone who feeds you like a king. But Nebuchadnezzar did this because you want your best men fed well. They would train for three years in order that they might serve before the king. Verses 6 and 7 identify these four men as from among those taken from Judah. It also stands to reason that there was probably young men from Syria and Phoenicia and other nations. Nebuchadnezzar would have wanted the best of the best from all the nations he conquered. All four of these young men had names that honored the God of the Jews. But it was the custom to change the names of these young men, and they did this for a couple of reasons. First, to try to get them to think like a Babylonian, to get them used to the fact that they were no longer a part of their former nation. But secondly, the Babylonians wanted their own gods to be honored. So Daniel's name meant in Hebrew, God is my judge. His name was changed to Belshazzar, which meant Bel, keeping in mind that Bel was one of their false gods. So his name literally just meant Bel, protect the king. Hananiah meant to the Jews, Yahweh is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, which meant command of Aku, which Aku was another Babylonian god. Mishael meant 
who is like the Lord or who is what God is. His name was changed to Meshach, which means who is what a coup is. Once again, a coup being that false god. Azariah meant to the Hebrews, the Lord is my helper. His name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego. Nego was a reference to Nebo. Nebo was the Babylonian god of vegetation. These four men were faithful servants of the God of Israel, but having the names of these false gods attached to them on a daily basis, being called the servants of these false gods, being taken away from your homeland, being part of a conquered people, being indoctrinated into another culture, transported hundreds of miles to live among total strangers. They were just young teenagers, and now they were subjected to the most powerful ruler on the earth. The education they were getting was the best the world offered, but it was ungodly. It was worldly, and it included being exposed to astrology and pagan mythology. It had to be a difficult, heart-wrenching time for all of them. But what we're going to see is that time after time, they stood faithful to the one true God. The story is told of a Scottish discus thrower from the 19th century. He lived in the days before professional trainers. And so he developed his skills alone in the highlands, and he made his own discus from the description he'd read in a book. But what he didn't know was that the competition discus was made out of wood with an outer rim of iron. His discus was made of pure metal, four times heavier than the ones that would be used in the competition. But he didn't know any better. This committed Scotsman trained day after day, laboring under the burden of the extra weight. And what he did is he actually marked out the record distance that a normal discus was thrown. Not a solid metal one, but a normal one. And he kept working until he could throw it that far. Well, the day of competition came and he was handed the official wooden discus. And he just threw it like it was no heavier than a frisbee. He set new records. And for many years, none of the competition could even come close. I do believe this illustrates for us exactly how God sometimes calls us to live out the Christian faith. He calls believers to train under a great burden. Don't pass by the human drama taking place in Daniel. Families were being ripped apart. Lives were lost, and the Jewish families that survived had to wonder if God was completely done with them, if they would ever become a nation once again. Yes, the nation was responsible because they had fallen into sin, but not everyone. There's always a remnant of faithful believers, and these families suffered even though they walked with the Lord. The families of Judah needed to learn to trust in God. And some of you listening may be training under a great burden right now, and at times it hurts. It can be difficult. Sometimes we get frustrated. We may cry or get angry at the burden we're living with. And sometimes, dare I say it, we may even get angry with God. We shouldn't, but it happens. God calls us to joy. God calls us to faith and trust in Him. Why? Because the burdens we carry are meant to produce perseverance. Perseverance is meant to produce maturity. And according to Paul in Romans 5, 4, this should all lead us to hope, the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And none of these things would be possible without the burdens that we carry. James put it this way, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When we trust in the sovereign plan of God, 
when we trust in the work of Christ in our lives, there are still many times when life may not make any sense at all. The lesson of the book of Job is that it's not always for us to know the plans of God. Those tough times, the hard times, when you lose a loved one, lose a home or a job, well, this is when we're called to have patience. This is when we are called to remain steadfast in the Lord and in His Word. And by doing this, we will find peace and confidence of God's love for us. Renew your trust and your confidence in the Savior, knowing that when the chips are down, when things look rough, you can and should continue to trust in Him. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.